What's up, y'all? Before we get into today's show, I want to talk to you about some of the other great content that's on offer on the ringer.com, great website. You can read Rob Harvilla on the MTV VMAs, which may be dying, but we can't stop watching. You can also read about Ariana Grande, which we will be talking about on today's show, actually. Uh, Lindsay Zolaz wrote a great piece about that. And you should read both Aretha Franklin tributes, one by Rembert Brown, another that was also by Rob Harvilla. And there is a great staff roundup of the best of Aretha Franklin on the website as well. But let's get into today's show. Welcome, welcome, welcome back again. Okay, today's show, we're going to be talking about two new releases that we're excited about. Ariana Grande's new album and Young Thug's new album with my colleagues Lindsay Zolads and Shea Serrano, respectively. In addition, we are going to be doing an Aretha Franklin tribute with Hanif Abdurraqib, who was gracious enough to join us again. But first, let's get into Ariana Grande's new album, Sweetener. Let's get it. You know that thing Mariah Carey and Denise Williams' voice does where it sort of whirls upwards into space during a run? It's called whistle singing, and I struggle to think of any current pop star who's better at it than Ariana Grande. But we always knew she could sing. Her third studio album, Sweetener, Lindsay Zolads writes, although not in so few words, proves she has more than just the range. Lindsay, first of all, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing okay. Second of all, where does Sweetener stand in comparison to Ariana Grande's first three albums? I just think this record is her best by a very far margin. Um, I think it's really imaginative and cohesive and sort of innovative in its production. And just, it really is moving beyond, I think her first two records were sort of a showcase for her voice and this sometimes overly showy, like I can really sing kind of vibe. Um, there are just too many piano ballads and and things like that. And I think it's a lot more interesting. Like, yes, we know that Ariana Grande is, has a technically good voice. Um, I'm much more interested in what she has to say with that voice rather than just proving her technical prowess. So I think she started moving towards making slightly more interesting, slightly more um, innovatively produced music on the last record, Dangerous Woman. But for me, this really is kind of her fulfilling her potential um, in ways that I was not always sure that she could. So I think it's a really great album for her that uh, it really exceeded the expectations that I had. Right. So you wrote about this in your piece, which is up on theringer.com right now. Great website. You should go check that out. Check it out. Um, <laughs> yeah, you about how this album sounds like uniquely Ariana, whereas like on Dangerous Woman, she was kind of doing the the rated R bad girl turn. <laughs> and and here's just kind of like she is kind of just presenting herself as is, so to speak. 
Yeah. Well, I think one theory I have is that when she licked the donut, she got magical powers and now she's a great artist. (laughs) She licked the donut. For lack of a less self-help book way to put it, this album is sort of like about a woman who's been through a lot of tumult recently, like getting to joy, so to speak. There was Donut Gate, but also not too long after that, there was the Manchester bombing. So she was performing at the Manchester Arena on her Dangerous Woman tour, and there was a bombing that uh, claimed 23 lives, including the bomber. And in the wake of that, there was a lot of, I guess, uneasy, uneasy and understandably emotionally charged conversation around what she owed her fans or, you know, like, and what it means to let the terrorists win and so, so on and so forth. And, and then she was back performing in Manchester at a benefit two weeks later. But in the intervening time, there was just a lot of noise, right? Yeah, I have to say I'm surprised at how quickly after, so the the bombing was in um, May of last year, and I sort of thought we wouldn't hear from her for a while, and um, I guess she did go dark and kind of have a couple months where she was just at home and and not on social media, Um, but I didn't really expect that we'd get another record from her this soon, and I think there's a lot of traps that she could have fallen into of trying to make music maybe directly about that experience, um, making it seem more about her than the victims because her crew and most of her friends and family that were at that show, um, it the bombing took place after the concert, so they were kind of safely backstage. So she didn't lose anyone close to her, but at the same time, it's an obviously traumatic experience that is sort of forever tied to her in this way that, complicates the really kind of light and fun and somewhat squeaky clean image that she had. So I think she's handled that transition superbly gracefully. Um, And I think that she's really struck the right note of not making it about herself, but at the same time, something about her has changed. I think she's seems like a more purposeful artist who's not afraid to speak out as much. She seems more focused in what she's exactly trying to say. And so I do think even though she's not directly addressing that tragedy on this record, there are ways in which she has grown that I think speak to how she handled that experience. Right. It's not so much that she's you know, saying, well, talking about the experience explicitly, but the album closer, Get Well Soon, is, as you wrote, uh, five minutes and 22 seconds long. The last 40 seconds are serve as a moment of silence. Uh, the date of the bombing was May 22nd. And on top of that, there's also the the panic attacks that she was experiencing after she came home are basically make up the backbone of breathing on this record. Just keep breathing and breathing and breathing and breathing. Keep on breathing. 
The other song that you wrote about in some depth was Blazed, of, and basically Pharrell's touches are all over this album. Shorty, you can get blazed. You describe it as the the album's first oh shit moment. What is is this? <laughs> what about that song particularly made you say oh shit? And how many times did you then play it on repeat? <laughs> I've lost track. Uh, to answer your last question first, Pharrell produced about half of this record. The other half are collaborations with Max Martin and I, a producer whose name escapes me, but is associated with Max Martin. I'm sort of astonished by how much fresher the Pharrell production sounds than the Max Martin stuff feels a little old-fashioned to me and kind of like pop by the numbers, which he's so good at doing. Um, but I think somehow the Pharrell has been doing that Neptune sound for so long that it's like come back around and become fresh and new again, which is one of the revelations of this record, I think, that there's a way in which it well, think, sounds sort of throwback to like like I Love You era Justin Timberlake from like 2002. But so few people other than Pharrell have really stuck faithfully to that sound and kind of the craftsmanship, craftsmanship of that sound. So there's something about this record that I really love that sounds both throwback to the pop of about 15, 20 years ago and with a new twist um, that feels very of the moment and particular to to what suits Ariana Grande's voice. Yeah. I mean, like, not, well, I don't think all of the Pharrell production sounds particularly fresh. There was Sweetener, which kind of sounds reheated from, I guess, like Nice or Neon Guts is the same drum pattern and kind of like, it's Fair, getting too deep but into it. Let's to talk Ariana about Grande fans. That's so. <laughs> <laughs> true. <laughs> um, Pete Davidson. Pete Davidson. Discuss. <laughs> I, look, I am rooting for these crazy kids. I love how strange their relationship was at first and how puzzling it was when we heard they had gotten together, let alone gotten engaged after a few weeks of dating. But I fully come around and I think they're my favorite celebrity couple right now. I think the decision to name a song on her album Pete Davidson is like the purest and goofiest form of love because nothing about that phrase is musical. <laughs> Pete Davidson. I mean, <laughs> she doesn't sing his name in the song, but it's a pretty silly title for a song. And yet as a romantic gesture, I think it's just just silly enough to be really moving and lovely. So I'm I'm rooting for these these crazy kids. I thought you into my life. Look at my mind. No better place all the time How they align Universe must have my back Up from the sky into my lap And I know you know that you must soul me and love that I'm like Final question Would you ever get somebody that you were dating And you know like perhaps were engaged to Would you get their initials tattooed behind your ear? I mean who can say? Who can say? <laughs> I think depends on maybe what the initials were and how aesthetically mm -hmm. pleasing. Aesthetically pleasing and whether or not you could have plausible deniability about the initials. If you would have told me 
a year ago that Ariana Grande would be engaged to Pete Davidson and make a song called Pete Davidson on her album, I would have said you were crazy. So I'm leaving everything open to possibility. Who knows what the future will hold? <laughs> Lindsay, thank you very much for joining me to talk about this album. I appreciate it. Thank you. Okay, so after changing his name to Sex for a short period of time and sending snakes to several media outlets, Young Thug finally released Slime Language last week, and it's pretty good. My colleague Shay Serrano, who I'm going to talk to in a second, wrote a piece about Audemars, which you can read right now on the ringer.com great website. Shay, how are you doing today, man? What up, baby boy? I'm doing good. <laughs> Shay, talk to me about Audemars. Like, what was the exact moment in the song where you're just like, I need to now write an essay about this? The, I know exactly what it was. The exact moment was in the opening chorus when he says the word bat. Because he's so fired up when he says it. Like, all the rest of the words are normal. And then when he gets to that word, he growls it very loudly. Like, <laughs> and he's like, well, here we go. This is a, this is another genius moment for a young thug. And then the whole rest of the song was incredible as well. So that, that's how it started was that was him saying that. Yeah, I mean, like, there's a lot of crazy vocal textures in the song. Kind of like you, you wrote about how it's sort of like Harambe the last time that he was really playing around with, I guess you would call it the bass of his voice, but it's more than that. It's really scratchy, but childish and infantile. And it's like in a really enjoyable way. Like, I think it was probably when he said Patek. Like, because yeah. his voice just like bounces all around the court. Can we hear that for a second, actually? It sounds like this kind of weird, demented version of Foghorn Leghorn. Yeah. But I think that the more, like, the, the other interesting part of it is the beginning where he's making the skirt, 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 skirt sound at the beginning and the end of it. You also mm -hmm. heard about that where the song loops perfectly. What is that sound? I don't know what that sound is, but I, I know that he's the only person on the planet who can do it. That's one of my favorite things about talking about Young Thug with somebody else is like we just ran into this now where you're trying to explain a sound that a guy makes and there's no way for you to do it. No matter how hard you try, you're never going to make it sound like he sounds. The same way you can't dribble like Kyrie can dribble, even if you do the exact same thing <laughs> he, he does. The exact it's just same not thing. the same. You will never be able it's to just, finish at the rim like that. You can't, you can't do it. Even if you make it, it just doesn't look right. Yeah. And that's what Young Thug, that's why Young Thug is to me so exceptional because he does things that nobody else can do, no matter how hard other people try. They can't make it sound like Young Thug can make it sound because it's just coming out of him. It's just the universe pumping love and energy through Young Thug and his mouth makes a sound and there you go. Congratulations. 
for what it's worth, I think that the sound is sort of like a fork against a pot on a stove, like he's stretching coke. But anyway, what do you think the second best song on Slime Language is? I like Uzi, so I'm going to go with the, you know, the Uzi verse on there. I like that song. That's, that's fun. Okay, I don't need a shooter. Oh, I got a clock with a ruler. These are not part of a guest. A pussy well in my neck. I gonna lie. I'm a pussy. I better go get a neck. I put a Z on a brand new iron on Corvette. I got holes like the muscle on a brand new tag. I got a Leah. Yeah, it's got another one of those restrained, wheezy beats that sounds yeah, kind of yeah, like a leftover yeah. from the Barter Six. Honestly, the run from Gang Clout all the way down to Scoliosis, I am uh-huh. a huge fan of. I mean, there's Dirty Shoes, yeah, Chanel, really the Gunna Lil Baby collab, which is always money. If we are going to meet this on its own terms and call it a compilation, kind of like a version of Young Money Volume 1. A lot of these artists we'll probably never see again. <laughs> I mean, like, listening through it, what project would you most want out of the ideas that are kind of on offer here? I'll go first. Mine is I want right. a, a small country EP from Gunna, Lil Baby, <laughs> and Young Thug. <laughs> okay. I don't want that. I don't want that at all. <laughs> I definitely. I wasn't a fan of the of the Tug of Country album. I mean, it was like, oh, this is neat for a second, and then I don't, you know, then okay. That was fine. That should have been three songs long. So when I was working on that article, mm-hmm. um, I was reading all of these. I was reading like every Young Thug piece I could find from, I think, when he first appeared in the Times in like 2014 through today. Mm-hmm. And I happened across a, it was like an old Andre 3000 article. And he was talking about how much he liked Young Thug because of the stuff that he's trying and he's experimenting. And, you know, that's like the kind of energy that rap needs at times. And I, I like, I would like, if we're going to get a compilation album or like a, a duo album, like, can we just get a Young Thug and Andre album and let's see who can be the weirdest here and find out what happens. Like, I think that would be super, super interesting because creatively, like who else? He, Andre's the first guy you think of, maybe Missy, when you're talking about, you just give somebody some space to see what they can make and they're going to do something that, you know, two or three other people on the planet could have done. Young Thug is one of those guys. Andre is, is one of those guys, and probably Missy Elliott is one of those. So, you know, let's get those three together on a thing and see what happens. Like, I feel like it could be something really incredible. See which one of them is going to be wearing the MC Hammer pants and football pads, huh? Yeah, <laughs> somebody's going to do something incredible. When do you think we're going to get the actual no-nonsense Young Thug debut album? Because this is technically a compilation. The one before that was a mixtape and then so was no my name is jeffrey and then there was an ep before that and several mixtapes before that so we still haven't technically gotten the the young thug debut album i think that he's post album young thug is he just wants to make his music and put it out there and he knows as long as it doesn't have that label you know he's been running from labels for his whole career and, and we're, I mean, that's all the way down to like a very basic level of like, 
well, I remember the whole the whole big thing about how he, when he was saying he's not gay or straight, like this sort of thing is just what he does, and I think it just works out really well for him. You know, it's like remember that old Bruce Lee quote where you're like, you can put water inside of a jug and it becomes a jug or something like that. Oh yeah, you got to like, be formless, shapeless, like, like young, water. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's that's young thug. He just doesn't want the container to be in because then he can be whatever he wants to be at whatever time. So I don't think we ever get the proper young thug debut album i hope we don't get it i hope he just keeps on putting out stuff like this that we can absorb for a few days or a couple weeks and then move on to the next part do you think that audemars is going to endure past like say a week or two of plays are you going to be listening to this in i don't know say october which of these songs are you going to be listening to for the longest do you think it'll be audemars yeah definitely audemars for me that's what happened with that with the arambe song like I'll delete the whole rest of the album out of the out of my phone, and I'm gonna save this one for whatever little mixes that I have. But that'll be that's the one. So I mean, like, is Young Thug ever actually going to become like? the i guess the premier pop artist or is he going to just keep making niche music for a very specific subset of rap fan i uh, definitely at the second part you know so much of, of rap so much of listening to it is context dependent do you mm. name one musician out there and there are like two other people who you usually name right alongside him like if we were talking about drake eventually meek mill's name is going to come up or if you're talking about kanye eventually jay-z's name is going to come up with Young Thug, like there's no there's no counterpoint to him. You can talk about other people who are similar to him, but you can't talk about anybody who's like balancing him out or who is on the other side of what he's trying to do. He just is context free. So I think you're talking about like where he belongs in rap. He's in his own little section right now, which is the best spot for him to be. He's like a like a like a reservoir dogs level, like a thing that everybody looks at and. And a bunch of people recognize it's great, but not everybody. It's you know kind what I'm of because it just didn't. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of appropriate that um, in the music video for "Up," which is the last Lozy collab he did on that EP that came out a couple months ago, the music video for that was basically just Twin Peaks: The Return, and it was kind of appropriate because it's just kind of like in the same way that everyone discusses, in the same way that everyone discusses whether or not Twin Peaks is a TV series or a movie like that is divided yeah, exactly. up into whatever, you'll not be able to classify Young Thug, really. He just shows up and does a thing and then that's the thing. And you're like, well, what is this? I don't know, but it's cool. You just never know when he's going to start out a song burping for 45 seconds <laughs> and and then start growling words. And like, you just don't know. You don't know what's going to happen. So oh. how do you classify what you don't know? Yeah. Yeah, he's wonderful. Well, Shay... Thank you very much for joining me to talk about Young Thug. It has been a pleasure. <laughs> All right. I appreciate it. Aretha Franklin, the Queen of Soul, passed away on August 16th, 2018. She was 76 years old. You might have found solace in your favorite song, in the beautiful things written about her, or in clips you could find floating around online. 
a young Aretha with a beehive singing jazz and gospel standards. An Aretha that had officially stood the test of time, standing on stage at the BET Awards in the mid-2000s, singing respects so well that she snatched her own wig. My next guest, Hanif Abdirakib, and I are going to do our best to remember Aretha the way that she ought to be remembered. Hanif, how are you doing today? How are you, Micah? Thank you for having me again. <laughs> of course. I've, I, I had to bring you back because I was thinking specifically about this line that you wrote in this piece that you did for Vulture where you said Aretha Franklin was great because at her long and storied peak, she would have been the best singer in any era she graced. She could have been dropped into any time period and would have still run almost every singer out of the room. Tell me if something similar happened with you. Immediately after we learned of uh, Aretha's passing, the, the group chat between me and my family members were was alight with like videos, but then also exactly who should do the tribute at the next, like because the VMAs were coming up. Yeah. And it was kind of just like, who can actually, who can sang sang? And it was like right. a very short list. I'm, I'm actually going to vote that there's just a moratorium on award show tributes when <laughs> people die. It, I mean, in, in some of that is like, that's tongue in cheek and funny, but some of it's truly because there is no there's often no way to translate that very well in a short amount of time. And even when there's a lot, you know, in, in what stands out is like, yes, Madonna was, was awful. And also, I mean, thankfully Madonna's like speech was so bad that it drew attention from her attire. <laughs> she was dressed like every white person who thinks Africa is like a country and not a continent. Um, but, you know, even when there's more time, you know, like Adele with the George Michael tribute at the Grammys where she really stumbled, got mm -hmm. it back stumbled you know the prince tributes were kind of lackluster even though people like really tried i i'm i'm good personally with just like a photo montage over some sentimental songs yeah um another thing that you wrote in your piece is that you were kind of getting at that idea of of everyone latching on to whatever it was about Aretha Franklin that made them feel the most at home or the safest you said which era speaks to you the clearest which I thought was an inter interesting way of putting it. Which era speaks to you the clearest? Like, what song were you returning to? I, I returned weirdly to her work in the 80s. Two Aretha Franklin eras really stand out to me. The first being uh, her earliest work, where, like, before she was on Atlantic Records and when she was on Columbia Records, because those albums were kind of very much... A very a young gifted singer trying to figure out how far she could push both her voice and her musical chops. Try a little, try a little tenderness. I may be, I may be a sentimental. It was kind of like a superhero discovering the length the the depths and the the reach of their super superherohood i guess yeah um, yeah yeah i mean yeah. and it's those albums aren't great you know atlantic was better because they let her play piano you know they like sat her down the piano and took away the backing band and she was able to kind of craft her own soundscapes for what her voice could do 
with the Columbia things, I imagine it's like watching early Jordan, you know, who, <laughs> who like was brilliant on bad teams. Mm-hmm. Um, it had, you know, moments of brilliance while also just straining beyond belief. But I also love Aretha between like 1981 and 1989. So I mostly ran through like Jump To It, Get It Right, and Who Zoom and Who, like those three albums in mm-hmm. the mid 80s. Because I'm fascinated by how at a time when so many of her peers lost their footing in the 80s, you know, because of the sonic shifts that were happening during the time and the traditions and soul music shifting and, you know, like a more pop-driven R&B that was driving towards what would eventually become New Jack Swing. Um, so many of her contemporaries kind of lost their footing in the 80s and she managed to stay, stay above ground. I mean, she wasn't like the biggest pop star in the 80s, um, but she was able to like still produce hits at a rate that were that was I think surprising at the time, um, not just hits but like Grammy Award nominated albums and albums that were like charting. And in the way she did that was by being kind of unafraid of collaboration. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, she has that song on Who's Zooming Who with Annie Lennox that uh, sisters are doing it for themselves, which is like kind of a, a corny song, but also kind of a banger. You know what I mean? I heard that song the first time in the first Wives Club, actually. <laughs> like, yeah. I, yeah. I can scarcely think of anybody that could... The idea of having a career that has spanned that spanned as many decades as it did for another, for another current artist is kind of unfathomable. Right. I mean, I don't know... Um, even some of the greatest singers of our generation, um, by our, I mean, like, mine and yours, folks in our age range, mm-hmm. um, it doesn't seem like there's a uh, a generational sustainability mm-hmm. in someone like and, and I say this to, to I mean I like Adele I like Adele a lot but you know Adele is still young and I don't know if Adele will have sustainability across eras you know someone like Mariah Carey who sustained for a few eras but is now not able to kind of like enter that third and fourth act of a career the way Aretha did. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, to be fair, Aretha struggled in her her fourth act due to health and, and just kind of like, you know, a voice, uh, a, a like once in a lifetime voice kind of losing its its vigor. Yeah, um, like the auto tune controversy around that uh, that album of covers when like she, covers, yeah. yeah, where she went over uh, Rolling in the Deep. Can we hear a little bit of that? First, I want to say that I think the way that Aretha Franklin's covering of songs is talked about is often unfair to what I imagine her goals were. Mm-hmm. It seemed always to me that her goals in taking on songs was maybe to honor the original singer, but also to hold them accountable for the song's greatest potential, right? 
Right. I, it's yeah. It's kind of like the the stories that you hear around the covers that she laid down. Say, with respect or with any any choose any song really that is a cover that was being discussed in the last few days, and it's just sort of she understood why the song why the original song was good and could see where it had the potential to be great. Right, and I think you know, yes, she like got most notable for that by taking Otis Redding's respect and kind of um, reframing the narrative. Mm-hmm. I think even with the rolling in the deep, you know, she did that great thing at the end of that song where she had the choir blending Ain't No Mountain High Enough mm-hmm. and really kind of took off from there. And I think, yeah, that's not a great cover, but it is a cover that told Adele, I saw something in your song that you didn't see. And there's a type of accountability there that I think Aretha was hold, trying to hold her contemporaries, her peers, and younger generations too. And I think that covering songs isn't always this like grand tribute, right? It's mm-hmm. not always a tribute. Sometimes it's saying, I think I can do this better and I'm going to attempt it. And I, what I love about that last Aretha album, specifically in the Adele song, is that she saw that song as a challenge and still, with her voice ailing and her health ailing, decided to take it on. And I, I think that was really um, a bold moment that I think about all the time. When did you first get to know Aretha Franklin's voice or when were you first introduced to it and who introduced you to it? Uh, my parents listened to Aretha, but I mostly got introduced to Aretha through the duet with George Michael that I knew you were waiting for me, which came out of like 87 or 86. So my first entry point to Aretha was in my very younger years, the 80s hits for a stretch of time didn't have context for who she was beyond that. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, I didn't dive in the 60s Aretha until I was like a teenager. There was something refreshing in that for me to first uncover this body of work by uh, a woman who I just thought was this 80s pop star and then find the kind of landmarks i found the landmarks of the career the like atlantic albums i never i never loved the man the way i love you and lady soul and aretha now mm-hmm. those all really shifted my idea of what singing could sound like it's one thing to say someone has a timeless voice but i think that if i had aretha now played for me in the 80s i would have thought that it was something that came out then and you know there was a there's like a tightness to the to the personnel on those albums too mm-hmm. you know like Bobby Womack on some of those albums and like Jimmy Johnson's playing guitar and like Roger Hawkins plays drums. So there was a sonic tightness to those albums that I really gravitated towards. I was first introduced to uh, Aretha Franklin through Spirit in the Dark. My parents used to have this massive armor that had a bunch of vinyl records in it that we never actually played. So we actually listened to it on the, on the, like on the computer or, on, or what have you. But it was Spirit in the Dark, and it was Don't Play That Song.
Yeah. Yeah, I didn't know until I went home for, I don't know, some family thing about two or three years ago. And I didn't know that it was her playing the keys in the beginning. And the reason that I have this uh, this phrase in my vernacular about, you know, like started in the church and having that mean something like as a, a signifier of some sort is because of Aretha Franklin. Like it's kind of like she's a benchmark for how, whether or not somebody is good at singing. Like it's kind of informed the way that I think about it. Because I mean, like it'll start like when we're sitting together as a family, it'll start with a video. It'll start with don't play that song. And then it'll go to uh, uh, Jasmine Sullivan at 14 singing The Wiz. You know, it'll right. it'll it'll be one of those things. And it's just kind of like Aretha Franklin was a benchmark, but also incomparable in a lot of ways. Yeah, and because she was self-taught on piano, um, or, or at least like taught herself piano without being able to like read music, you know, was not. I, I think that allowed for some whimsical sharpness in her piano playing. You know, she was able to build these sonic flourishes without adhering to the strict classical nature of piano. Mm-hmm. You know, I, and I, I know a lot of people wrote about this, and I was thankful for that. I, I thought that in the writing about her after she passed, no one would talk about how skilled of an actual musician she was. You know, that was that was really a, a center point of those Atlantic albums. Yeah, so she, to, well, she did start out in the church. Her, her father was a very famous Baptist pastor named C.L. Franklin. She, refor- she recorded her first album of uh, gospel standards literally in the church. And she was at Columbia right. and... She, that was, you know, like when she was more or less finding her range, but not actually playing any instruments. And it was Jerry Wexler who decided to put her back on the piano when she went to Atlantic. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And if you like read Jerry Wexler's like stories of recording with her, a lot of it is just, you you would sit her down on the piano and like let her figure it out. You know, Mm -hmm. Um, he was a producer in kind of a, at least with Aretha Franklin. Uh, and in a somewhat hands-off sense. And that's really kind of exciting. And I don't know if it is possible that an artist now could get the kind of freedom that Aretha Franklin had to kind of build their own sound around what they wanted to do. I think that Aretha's voice could play uh, when she was at a prime, at least. I think her voice would be the best voice in any era. But I don't know if those albums, at least the way those albums were made, would hold up in any era. Right. And it's the the way that they were made. And then also, I guess, the commercial performance of some of them, which I mean, like they weren't always it wasn't always great. No. Yeah. Some of that is just due to the amount of albums that were being put out in the era when she was in her prime. You know, I, mm-hmm. I, mean, I think that she put out an album every single year, um, maybe until the mid 80s. And that also, I think, is something that was um, phenomenal to have um, a voice as large as hers uh, and a voice as that requires as much labor as uh, to, to be as brilliant as we know what to be. Um, putting in that much work over the course of, you know, like almost two decades mm-hmm. is really phenomenal. That it is. We already talked about the, the song or the air that you found yourself returning to in the immediate aftermath, but 
and this is like I've this is almost an unconscionable question, and I'm sorry that I'm asking you this, but do you have a favorite uh, Aretha Franklin song? No, you don't. No, there's, it's impossible no. to do, right? It's like you can't. There's you remember Aretha Franklin songs like meals that you've eaten. Like it's right. it's you know that there are ones that are absolutely better than others and some that you are convinced are the best that you've ever had, but you can't remember, you can't have a definitive ranking of it. And now, yeah. I will say that I think today my favorite Aretha Franklin song in this particular hour is her version of People Get Ready. People get ready for the train to Georgia. It's picking up passengers from coast to coast. Faith is the key. Open the doors and borders. You know, there are songs, I think, in the American canon, the American songbook that are just very hard to mess up. You know, like, Don't Stop Believing is a hard song to mess up. September should be a hard song to mess up unless you're a Taylor Swift. <laughs> and people get ready. I think beautiful gowns, beautiful gowns. Beautiful gowns. <laughs> that is my favorite Aretha Franklin song. Beautiful gowns. <laughs> people get ready is I think one of those songs that is in that for me where it's just very hard to mess it up because of the emotional reach within the very basic structure of the song, the very basic like sonic qualities of it. But I think a true landmark of a of a cover is if you can take a song that is very hard to mess up and then improve on it, you know what I mean? Take it to like the next level. Like don't take any plays off just because it's a song that should be easy to gain some emotional resonance. Mm -hmm. And I think Aretha's cover of People Get Ready is really gets right to the heart of what the song should be. It's almost like seeing the lights in your house come on when it's like late and you get home and you don't have your keys. It's that's yeah. yeah. I think that mine, the one that I've been listening to most recently has just been Chain of Fools because I was recently reading old uh, Rolling Stones items and stuff on rock back pages, early reviews of her early albums like in the 60s and the way that they talked about them as, you know, like not really taking them seriously or just kind of like, uh, you know, it's it, it's not exactly solo Beyonce. She's She won't be Ashanti, but it's pretty close. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I think that's pretty close. That's, a good, that's pretty close. <laughs> yeah, it was it was Chain of Fools is dull and repetitious, quote unquote. Which I was just like, wow, okay. I mean, I, I think the, the whole thing with Aretha, right, is that she relied on repetition to further either Well to hone things. Yeah, to hone things or to like sharpen a point, you know, like the fact that in respect she spells it out very twice, like very sharply twice. Um, so her her use of repetition in music was usually to to like pull the magnifying glass even closer to the object. Yeah, uh, yeah, which I mean, again, goes back to what we were already talking about. Whereas that covering a song is equally about, well, maybe not equally, but about paying respect to the original, but also improving it and taking it to heights that it otherwise would not have reached. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Respect was not paying tribute to Otis Redding. And I love Otis Redding. Hey, little girl, you are sweet as the honey. And I'm about to give you all of my money. 
that was a direct reframing of the song because it because she imagined it was falling short in messaging and in tone and the times were not served by Otis Redding's rendition of respect. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's all language around around challenging and being in conversation with some your your peers. You know, mm-hmm. if she loved the song, then she wanted to see how far she could push it herself. And that there's there's no greater gift than that. No, no, there isn't. Hanif, thank you very much for joining me today, man. No doubt, Mike. Thanks for having me. Anytime. Love, love talking music with you. <laughs> love talking music with you, man. Take it easy. All right. That's it. That's all we got. Thanks so much for listening. Special thanks to Lindsay, Hanif, and Shay. Check out their articles in the show notes. Shout out my producers, Agia Shagre and Zach Mack. Don't forget to check out our playlist that we will be updating every week with the songs that we're listening to. A link to that is in the description. Also, please rate and subscribe if you like the show, but only if you like the show. We'd really appreciate it. Peace. See you next week. Stay black, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera.